this morning. Colossians chapter 2 is where we are, starting verse 16, Colossians 2.16. As you're turning there, if you recall briefly from last week, as we were studying verse by verse through this wonderful letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to the church in Colossae, and we saw that the Bible took us back to a time before Jesus, uh, life B.C., remember, before Christ. <laughs> and we learned, though, that we, before we found Jesus, huh, before he found us, remember, uh, we were dead in our sins, the Bible says, spiritually dead because of our sins, separated from God. But the good news is that Jesus came along, that God in his grace called to us, and he began to awaken us up from the dead, as we talked about last week. And he began to open the mind and the heart. And we be able, began to be able to see Jesus and sin in our lives. And, and we needed the Savior. We begin to understand heaven and hell and the love of God. And, and then God gives us a choice. Remember, as he awakens us from the dead, we can say, yeah, I want to turn to Jesus and be saved. Or I can go back to my place of spiritual deadness. We have a choice. God doesn't drag anybody kicking and screaming to heaven. But we learned that if we said yes to Jesus and gave our lives to him, and then we repented, we turned from our sins, then God did this miraculous thing. He takes us from death into life, right? Spiritual life in this world and life everlasting with him. Hmm. We found that he forgave us all our sins. Thank you, Lord. He took away that written code, right? The, 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 the written notice of our guilt and shame because of our sin, that we were guilty sinners. And the Bible said last week that he took it upon himself and he nailed it to the cross. Jesus took our sin at the cross and died. We learned last week that he disarmed the powers and the authorities, the, the, the demonic world, that he disarmed the devil. So therefore the devil has no more power to hold us captive in sin and in death, but Jesus set us free and made us... A, a way to get to God the Father through faith in Christ. So awesome stuff in this book of Colossians. I've thoroughly enjoyed this. I hope you're growing in your faith as well. And we just really learned last week that it was all by God's grace that awoken us from the dead, gave us a choice. We put our faith in the Lord, and he made us alive in Christ. Now I say all that as a little summary from last week, because that'll um, uh, lead us to the next verses in our Bible. And this kind of piggybacks off of what last week talked about. So let's go ahead and read our passage this morning. So if you will stand with me out of reverence for God's holy word. We're going to be reading Colossians chapter 2, starting in verse 16. Just two verses today, but packed full of good stuff. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are a shadow of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. So starting back where we began there in verse 16, it says, Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, or a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. We'll discuss what on earth that all means. But it starts off with therefore. And when you're reading in the Bible, it says therefore. You ought to look back before it and find out what it's therefore, right? Okay, very good. Very good. That's what you got to do. So that's why I kind of summarized it. So basically, the Bible is saying, in light of, of all that Jesus has done for us, that he's risen us from the dead, spiritually and given us life everlasting because he's canceled our sin, our debt. He set us free from the condemnation of the law. We talked about that, remember, last week. 
set us free from the ceremonial law. We're going to talk about this week as well as we did a little bit last week. Having destroyed the devil's grip on our life, in light of all of this, therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration or a Sabbath day. Those are the ceremonial laws that we are set free from. So don't let people get you back into observing those as if that was the law. Because verse 17, look at, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Okay, so the Apostle Paul here, as he's writing, he's listing all the things that the believers in Christ are set free from, this ceremonial law. Again, we'll talk about that in, in details. But this law came from the old covenant. Before Jesus came, God gave the nation of Israel all kinds of laws. We should be grateful we don't live back then, because there's a whole lot of them. It's very hard to keep them. Now remember the author here, the Apostle Paul, is writing to this church in a place called Colossae. They're Colossians. And they're uh, being influenced by a false teaching that is starting to creep into the church. These heretics are promoting this false teaching. And we have to understand that the devil has always been trying to attack the church from the very beginning, from thousands of years ago when the church first began, to now. The devil is always trying to foist lies upon God's people and derail our faith. Get us thinking about other things besides Jesus, and he's won. That's, that's the, the plan of the enemy for the church here. Get your eyes off of Jesus. Hmm. Right? And we've been there once or twice, probably. Get our eyes off of Jesus, and we start having all kinds of problems. Well, today we have many false teachers as well that are <clears throat> introducing lies and heresies into the church in this modern age, leading people away from faith in Christ. That's why it's so important that we know our Bibles. That's why I like to go verse by verse. Just let's teach the Bible and let's live the Bible. There you go. We won't be deceived by false teachings and we'll get to know God and learn how to love Him. Well, these false teachers, apparently, as we'll learn in the weeks to come, they were people in the church. They were, right, they were like one of us. That somehow got deceived by a false teaching and then became the deceiver. That's how it works. Somebody gets deceived and then becomes the deceiver in the midst of the church fellowship. Can you imagine that? But the Bible says that these people have lost connection with Jesus. They're off on their own tangent here and now deceiving other people. And from verse 16, we see that they are pressing upon the Colossian believers to return to the Jewish customs and practices that the Old Testament talks about that time before Jesus. Something like this. Hey, if you want to become a real Christian, really know God, you, you need to uh, go back to the dietary laws of the Old Testament. Right? You have to observe the ceremonies and, and uh, uh, the Sabbath days, and then you can be saved. Right? If you follow all these laws, then you can be saved. Hmm. All the feasts and festivals. Remember, Israel had a lot of feasts and festivals like Pentecost and Tabernacles and the one we celebrate before Easter, pa uh, Passover. So I'm sure they were saying, you have to do all this. It's like Jesus plus a bunch of other rules and then you can be saved. Hmm. There's a lot of religions like that. It's Jesus plus a whole lot of stuff you got to do and then you can be saved. But that's not what the Bible teaches, is it? It isn't Jesus plus a bunch of other things. It's just Jesus. Right? It's faith in Christ. That saves us, not all those little rules and regulations. However, and the Bible does tell us in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8 through 10, if you want that for your notes, Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it is by grace you have been saved through faith. Right? 
And this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that nobody can boast. So we don't get to heaven by good, doing good things, by good, being a good person and doing a lot of good stuff. Because the Bible says we can never be good enough. But it's faith in the Lord Jesus and what he did on the cross when he died for our sins and rose from a grave. That's what gives us eternal life. But that passage does goes on, go on to tell us that we are to do good works that God had prepared in advance for us to do. So we put our faith in Jesus. That saves us from hell, forgives us. But then we go and do good things because we love God. So the good deeds are more the evidence of true faith in Jesus. But it's not what saves us. But some people get confused. Well, if I do a bunch of good things, then I can be a Christian. Then I can be saved. Then I can make it to heaven. And maybe that's what's being taught here in this heresy. You have to do all these old practices, and then you can be saved. But that's a lie. And that's why the Apostle Paul is combating that and writing that to the Colossians church. Because really, as he's going to tell us here, we're going to learn that all the Old Testament laws and practices were all pointing to Jesus. And if you got Jesus, you don't have to go backwards into those old practices is what he's saying. These are a shadow, verse 17, of the things that are to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. So all the Old Testament, when you read the Old Testament, it all points to the Lord Jesus who was to come. And sometimes you scratch your head and say, well, I don't know how some of that points to Jesus, but <laughs> it does. And we'll talk about some of that this morning. They were a foreshadowing of Christ who would come and fulfill them. Remember Jesus said, and I've quoted it the last couple of weeks, Matthew 5, 17. He said, do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets, right? The old covenant. So I did not come to abolish them, but I came to fulfill them. Very good. To fulfill them. Hmm. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all that the old covenant had to say. And, and those things in the Old Testament were, were shadows, but not the reality. So this is what I picture in my overly vivid imagination. The sun is just coming up over the horizon, and a very tall man is walking towards me. Okay, so the sun is coming up behind him, so the shadow is in front of him. And you know how the sun will cast those really long shadows? So there I am. I see the shadow coming, and there's a guy off in the distance, sun coming up behind him, and I meet the shadow first. And by the shadow, I can tell, well, it's not a horse, right? It's a person. It's a, I can tell a few vague things about this, this individual, but it's just a shadow. I don't really know him, but as he keeps coming and coming in time, pretty soon I get to meet the reality that is the person. And I can see his face and get to know him and talk with him, but I met the shadow first. And I think that's what the old covenant laws and regulations were all about. They were a shadow that led to the ultimate reality of Jesus. Hmm. I was uh, reading uh, old J. Vernon McGee, if you've ever heard that guy on the radio. He's been dead for years, but he's still preaching sermons all the time on the radio. But I have some of his old commentaries, and I like to read him. And he was saying that we get our word photograph from this word shadow that comes out of the Greek. Interesting. So you could also say that these things were a picture of Jesus, but not the reality of Jesus himself, but what looked like Christ. Hmm. Then he went on to tell this interesting story about a woman who... Uh, uh, during World War II, you know, the young men would often get married and then go off to war. Um, my grandfather was in World War II for four years, never came home, not once. Not a phone call, nothing for four years, right? And uh, so this young woman, she gets married, her husband goes off to war, and uh, the ladies would carry pictures around of their husbands. And normally it was a small picture out of their purse or wallet. But this woman, he said, had the largest purse known to man. It was enormous. And out of it, she pulled this huge picture of this husband 
Must have been the only one she had. It was like in a frame with glass. And there's a gigantic picture. She pulled out. She carried it everywhere she went. Showed it to everybody. Talked about her husband. Longed to see him. But it must have been the only picture she had. Or I don't know. She maybe just liked it. But he said it was huge and unnecessarily large. But it was just a picture that she longed after. Not the reality. But then the young man came home from war. And he stepped off the boat. And she, didn't, she ran up to him, but she didn't run up to him holding the picture, staring at the picture. She left the picture at home because the reality she could hold on to and grasp and love and treasure all her days. Oh, sure, she probably kept the picture on the wall. Like we have the old covenant. We don't get rid of it. We read it. We try to understand it and grasp it. But we have the reality of the Lord Jesus Christ to know and to love and to look into his face. We don't have to Go backwards and just look at shadows and pictures, which is what the false teachers were trying to get the church to do. Go backwards and look at the things that were just pictures and shadows and not the reality of Christ himself. Hmm. It's a plan of the devil to get our eyes off of Jesus. So the ceremonial laws pointing to Jesus who was to come. We're no longer bound by the ceremonial laws. But as we talked about last week, we are bound by some of the laws, right? Like the moral laws of God. Remember the Ten Commandments? Should not kill and commit adultery and covet and all that. Yeah, we're still bound by that. We call it the law of Christ. All of those laws of the Ten Commandments made it into the New Covenant. Uh, the apostles talked about them and reiterated them, except for one, the, uh, the Fourth Commandment, the commandment about the Sabbath, and we'll get to that in just a little bit. So we still obey the moral law of God, but... Well, thank you, Lord, we're not bound to all the ceremonial laws. Um, so now let's look at some of these laws. Let's kind of examine them, and we want to see how Jesus is the fulfillment of these laws. Okay? Hmm. So verse 16, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink. And we as Gentiles in the modern era can read that and be like, okay, well, you don't drink soda pop? Or what, what does this mean? We don't understand, right? But, and even this church of this day actually were Gentiles, but they would have understood. They would probably lived next to a bunch of Jews. But have you ever read the Old Testament, the book of Leviticus? Mm. You read it for a while, and then you gave up on it, and you went back to the New Testament, didn't you? Because <laughs> you're like, wow, what does this have to do with me? I don't even understand what's going on here. Well, I think it's what they're referring to. They're saying you have to go back to these dietary restrictions that God gave in the book of Leviticus. I commend to you Leviticus chapter 11 for a little homework, fun reading to check out um, some of those dietary laws. Um, but there's this big old list that God gave the nation of Israel of food that was clean and food that was unclean. If it was clean, it was righteous. You're good. You didn't sin. But if you ate the unclean food, you literally sinned against God. Okay, It's a big deal. So God had clean food, and he had unclean food, but it's a dizzying section. Let me just read you a couple sections because it's kind of interesting and it helps us to understand it a little bit. Leviticus 11.3 says, you may eat, God says, you may eat any animal that has the split hoof, completely divided, and that chews the cud. That's one of the main rules. If you're looking for animals to eat, they've got to be like mork for mork. Nanu, nanu. Some of you remember that show. Some of you don't. And they have to chew the cud. So like a cow, right? Split off, choose a cud, yummy, yummy, eat your beef. It's, it's fine by God, right? It's okay. Uh, but a camel, he chooses cud, but his foot isn't split. It's like a big foot for sand, you know, whatever. It's not a hoof. 
So you can't eat him. He's unclean. That would be sinful if you're an Old Testament Jewish person. The swine, that's the one we know. If anybody knows anything about the Jewish laws, it's the pigs. You can't eat the swine. They have a split hoof, but they do not chew the cud. So therefore, they're unclean. That'd be sinful to eat them. These are also known as kosher laws. You ever gone to the store and found a little stamp on your package that said, kosher? Right? Yeah. That's because a rabbi, a Jewish rabbi, came to that plant where his package and checked it all out, made sure it was clean and packaged correctly, and it went along with Leviticus chapter 11 and pretty much the whole book of Leviticus. That's what the rabbis are still doing. So if you eat kosher food, that's the situation there. In fact, kosher food probably is better than a lot of others. I understand if you go to Israel today, you can eat anything you want and don't worry about getting sick, especially as a Westerner. Where you go to other countries, it's pretty dicey, right? You've you got to be careful what you put in your mouth. But the Jewish kosher laws keep everything very clean over there. So anyway, a little, little tidbit there. It goes on to talk about the fish you can eat. They can have fins and scales, right? But you can't eat the eel because he's got skin. If you go to the Jordan River today, that's loaded full of catfish. They're overrun with catfish because the Jews don't eat them because they have skin, not scales. Anyway, that would be unclean. Birds, there's a big list of birds, like you can't eat the vulture. That seems like a good idea. You know, I just, thanks, Lord, I appreciate that one. Bats, you know, you can't eat bats. Yeah, that'd be bad, you know. That's pretty unclean for anybody's taste buds, I think. Uh, talk about bugs you can eat, right, and can't eat. For instance, the grasshopper is clean, but the beetle and the scorpion and the centipede, those are unclean, right? Definitely you wouldn't want to eat those. <laughs> so what's the point of all of this? Right? What's, what's going on here? We often think to ourselves as we read the book of Leviticus. And it's these kinds of laws that the false teachers are foisting upon this church in Colossae and say, you got to eat this and that, and you can't eat that. And they're judging them and saying, you gotta, if you're going to be a real Christian, you got to follow these laws. Hmm. Creating a legalism. Some people in churches are very much into legalism. All these little rules on top of rules, right? And when you get really legalistic and you get focusing all these rules, you would forget about Jesus. Because all you're doing is thinking about the little rules. And I think that's the plan of the devil for this church in Colossae, to sidetrack them. But it can happen in, in modern churches as well. People get very legalistic. And then what happens is we start stop thinking about righteousness and truth and forgiveness and the love of God and loving other people because we're obsessed with all the rules. <laughs> Certainly I can see a couple of rules for the church to help guide us in our life. Sure. Let's not get all crazy and invent rules that aren't even in the Bible. That'd be dumb. But yet there are some churches that are hyper-legalistic. All men have to wear shirts clear to the, you know, like this all the time. <laughs> the women's skirt has to be to the bottom of the ankle, and the, their hair can never be cut, and it always has to be in a bun, and the men cannot have long hair, and the men cannot grow beards. Oh, I messed that one all up. So did Jesus. Because okay, we make dumb rules that aren't even in the Bible. Why would we do this? But anyway, people like to do this. <laughs> what about jewelry and makeup? And, and well, I can't play the drums in church because that would be the devil's beat and all these things and types of foods and yada, yada, yada. But I've noticed that those who cling to these things often forsake the greater things like grace and mercy and forgiveness and kindness and loving one another. Right? Because they get all stuck into the rules. Maybe you've been in part of that church or have heard of that. I don't know. Or maybe you never have. But it's easy to fix our eyes on other things and not on Jesus. We want to be careful with all that. So the Colossians, they don't need to go backwards. When you get caught up on all these laws, it don't matter to them because Jesus was the fulfillment. And those things were just the shadows, the pictures, and the ladies' purses. Huh. 
Okay, so here's a question for you. Well, I'm going to attempt to answer it for you. How did Jesus fulfill the dietary laws of the Old Covenant? Hmm. Honestly, I didn't know until a couple days ago. I knew that Jesus was, he's always, he's the picture, he's the, all these things foreshadowed Christ, but how exactly, sometimes I don't know. Some I know very clearly. But then through studying and prayer, I feel like God uh, gave me a good answer. But before I try to answer that first, um, why did God give these in the first place? Just to lay that down. Why did God even give them these dietary rules? Because they seem kind of weird, right? Well, number one, I believe God gave Israel uh, these dietary restrictions for holiness. If you read the book of Leviticus, it's all about being holy, being set apart from the world and sin, and being separate, just belonging to God. That's holiness. Belonging to God, not belonging to the sin of the world. So that's really, I think, the whole point of the dietary restrictions, to be set apart for God. So when Israel was brought out of slavery, they were slaves for 400 years in Egypt, remember, a slave nation. God brought them out by the hand of Moses. Well, God's hand, but Moses' little hand was there, right? And he brought him into a promised land eventually, after 40 years of wandering in the desert. But the problem was the promised land was a land called the land of Canaan. And the Canaanites lived there, and they were a horrible, wicked group of people. I mean, every evil and wicked behavior under the sun that you can possibly imagine, these people were committing. And God was actually expelling them and, and getting rid of them as, as judgment and letting his people move into the land. But everything from bestiality to child sacrifice. Imagine that. Bestiality on one side. It's child sacrifice. Killing their children. Giving them to the false gods. Letting them burn on their altars. Right? And every perversion and wickedness in between that, these people did. They were nasty. Horrible people. And here comes the people of God into their land. So I think one of the main reasons that God gave the dietary restrictions was actually to separate his people from the pagan nastiness going on. Because when you take food out of the equation and I can't share a meal with you, suddenly I can't hang out with you very much. Particularly in the ancient world. Everything was about hospitality and food getting around together. Oh, that's changed a lot, right? Oh. You ever get together with family? It's all about the next meal that's coming that you're preparing for. and every right? Meal to meal you live as a, the family. But food is like the sin. It kind of binds us together and there's fellowship and friends. And, and the ancient world was very much into hospitality. So if they couldn't sit down and eat the pork sandwich that the pagans are eating, now they don't get to hang out with them. This helps to separate them from their sinful neighbors. The Bible says that a bad company corrupts good character. Right? You hang around bad people, you might be like them. So God is keeping them separate so they won't be influenced by the idols and all the nastiness. And you know the main reason why these people were so nasty? It was actually their false gods. It was the worship system that created the perversion. Mm. It was a sexual nasty worship system. So their false gods is what God is really keeping these people from, that sinful behavior. Okay, so keeping them separate, that they love God and not love these other things. Okay, that's the primary reason. Secondly, I think that God gave them the dietary restrictions as a test of obedience. Do you love me enough to just not eat these things and do what I say? It's a good test. Sometimes we just tell our kids, how come? Because I said so, right? <laughs> uh, the, also, thirdly, I think that the dietary practices came along for uh, health reasons. People of the ancient world, they didn't know that when you ate your pork raw, well, I like my pork raw, please, right, with the red in the middle, that I could get trigonosis <laughs> and these diseases. And how many other animals give diseases and stuff? And 
I've heard of some of the like ground squirrels in certain places carry the plague even today. Like, ugh, right? So anyway, God was giving them a list of foods that were clean and healthy. And the Jewish society has always been more healthy than the others when the plagues would come through because of their cleanliness and their dietary practices. They actually were not as sick as others throughout the world when great uh, calamities came upon them as far as diseases. Uh, and also eating, not eating buzzards and bats. Thank you, Lord. Seems like a good idea. But anyway, anyway. How does the dietary laws then be a foreshadowing of Christ? How does Jesus fulfill it? How do you see Jesus in all that? <laughs> Good question. I'm glad you asked. How is he the greater reality? Hmm. The Old Testament Jew made a choice every day about his food. If I eat this, I'll be clean and God will be pleased. If I eat that, I'll be unclean and I can't go worship at the tabernacle and I'll be sinning and God will not be happy with me. Every day they had to make a choice about what was right and what was wrong. And many moral things as well, but of course, even down to their food. Interesting. So God was ingraining into them that some things are right and some things, well, are wrong. A choice was made to love God or not love God even with their food. But then in the fullness of time, because they lived in the shadow, but in the fullness of time as Jesus came closer and closer and then he stepped into our world, clothed in flesh and blood, and they got to meet the reality, there was a, a greater choice to make. Not about, well, I'm going to eat this or that. Well, now, will I put my faith in Christ and really love God and cling to him? Or will I cling to my own sinful life and my own sinful behaviors? The Bible says that Jesus came to the Jewish people first. He was Jewish and then to the rest of the world. So I think that Jesus was presenting himself to the Jewish nation as the ultimate clean food. For them to make a choice, yes, I choose righteousness as I trust in Jesus. Let me read to you something that Jesus said in John uh, chapter 6. He compares himself to food, interesting. <laughs> John Chapter 6, starting verse 35. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And he says over in verse 51, he says, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world, right at the cross. So when Jesus came as a choice, as the ultimate clean food, see, when you to eat upon Jesus, to feed upon him, is what he's saying there, that means that you take him into your life, into the innermost parts. If you eat a piece of bread, it goes into your stomach, it's metabolized and goes to every organ and all around you and gives you life. So when we come to faith in Jesus, we take him deeply inside our souls until he affects the mind and the actions, and the attitudes, and the motives. He, he comes in to live with us, and changes us, and he gives us life. He is the ultimate clean food. We, we feed upon his grace. We feed upon his mercy, and his forgiveness, and we draw upon him for life now, and we draw upon him for life for all eternity. When you ate the unclean food, you sinned. When you ate 
from the cleanest food, the Lord Jesus, the bread of life. You are clean for all eternity. He washes away your sins, and he makes you clean in the presence of God. Right? Morally, you are purified when you eat the ultimate clean food by receiving the Lord Jesus Christ. Mm, man, Jesus even fulfilled the funny laws about food. How cool is that? Thank you, Lord. And when we take him in deeply, he changes our lives. He makes us a child of God, and he saves us. So we have a choice. Even you and I today, we, are we going to eat on the clean food of Christ, the cleanest that purifies us from the inside out? Or are we going to feast upon the selfishness and the sin of this world? And we have a choice every day. Jesus or my sinful selfishness? It's more relevant than we think to our day in which we live. Has Jesus made you clean? Have you tasted of the ultimate clean food and let him wash away your sins? If not so, if you haven't done that, you can today. So for the Colossian church, why would they go back and feast on the shadows when they could feast on the reality of Jesus, right? Mm. Verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival or a new moon celebration. <clears throat> God in the Old Covenant gave Israel many festivals and celebrations. And I'm not going to get into all the festivals. Uh, that'd be sermons after sermons, I'm sure. But come and join us in, in uh, April before Easter. And we have a celebration of the Passover meal right here in this room. And we, But what's cool about it is we don't celebrate the shadow of the Passover lamb. We celebrate Jesus, the reality, whom that feast was, was speaking about. Right? He is our Passover lamb slain for the sins of the world. Anyway, so I want to talk about one part here. It mentions the New Moon Festival. Anybody know what a New Moon Festival is? Because I didn't until I read this. And then uh, on Wednesday, we studied about it this week. Some of you are grinning. I can see your little grins because you were a Bible study. And in uh, 1 Samuel chapter 20, I think it was, it talked about King David not showing up for the new moon festival and King Saul was all angry and went off to, to kill him, right? <laughs> so what's going on there? Well, I had to learn because I was going to have to like tell you guys about it. So what's going on with this new moon festival? Well, it's a Jewish holiday. God gave his people many holidays and times of sacrifices. This comes from Deuter De no, Deuteronomy, sorry, Numbers 28. Numbers 28. And it gives a list there of sacrifices that God demanded of his people. Check this out. They were surrounded by death. Hmm. Animal sacrifices all the time. Blood, lots of blood shed. They were reminded them that they were sinners and that their sin was so grievous before God that it actually demanded the death penalty. Their life would be demanded, but they learned that God was gracious and merciful and provided a substitute in their place, a little animal to die, so they didn't have to. Thank you, Lord. So they had daily sacrifices every day at the temple of God. A lamb was slain in the morning, blood poured out, burnt on the altar, and in the evening... Same thing happened twice a day to remind the Israelites of their sin. It was going on every single day. 
Then they had weekly sacrifices on the Sabbath, the Saturday. There was lambs, two lambs that were also slain for the sins of Israel. And then they had monthly sacrifices. This is where the new moon festival comes around. If you know what a new moon is, I actually had to Google it. I knew it had something to do with the phase of the moon. Well, full moon, right? It's all full. The new moon is when the moon is not even there. It's like, boop, it's gone. And then it comes a little sliver and grows back. So that happens once a month. So the new moon is when they would have this festival and they'd have a big feast and celebrate God and praise him for his goodness. But they would offer sacrifices for their sins. And then there were yearly sacrifices. Have you heard of Yom Kippur, right? The Day of Atonement. I looked at my calendar. It was October 8th. I don't know what the Jews do because they don't have a temple anymore. But anyway, you might see that on your calendars. And they had lots of other sacrifices. So these false teachers who are coming into the church of Colossae are saying these Gentile believers have to go back, start eating like the Jew, and also you have to start sacrificing animals for your sins at the new moon festival. Can you imagine? So this is absolutely horrific. They're saying that the, the blood of these animals has to be given for your sins. You have to revert back to these things of the old covenant. Well, this is absolutely blasphemy. That's a slap in the face of God, a slap in the face of the Lord Jesus, who already bled and died for the sins of the world. They're going backwards into the shadows and not living in the fullness of the reality of the saving grace of Jesus. Because see, if the false teachers can get them to go back to the animal sacrifices, then Jesus is of no value to them, right? No value. What good would he be? How sad. What did John the Baptist say when he first saw Jesus? He said, look, the Lamb of God, <laughs> who takes away the sin of the world. He called him a Lamb of God, a sacrificial Lamb that came from God. The lambs of those days had to be perfect. They were inspected to make sure they didn't have a bad eye or disease or something. So Jesus was perfect, sinless, because he's God who came to us in the flesh. And Jesus sacrificed himself on the cross for our sins. So therefore, all my sin and yours and the shame and the guilt and all our breaking of God's law, whether we be thoughts or actions, all our sin fell upon the Lord Jesus when he sacrificed himself at the cross. Mm, blessed be his name. And then he rose from the dead to show us that he's God and would give us life everlasting. God was merciful and gave us the ultimate sacrifice of his son, right? Stunning. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The love of God. So to reject that and go back to animal sacrifices is horrific. Read the book of Galatians. Paul is not happy with those folks. They're doing the same thing, going back to that. Ultimately rejecting the beloved son of, of God. Going to animal sacrifices instead of the reality of the Lord Jesus. Let me read to you from the book of Hebrews chapter 10. For your notes, Hebrews 10, 1 through 4 and verse 10. It says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, all those animals dying, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, they would have been stopped being offered. For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But they, they felt guilty 
Even though they brought the animal sacrifices, it says, but those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sin because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. But those were the shadows. But then when we meet Jesus, the reality is, is that when he died for our sins and we put our faith in Christ, you don't have to feel guilty for your sins. It doesn't matter how wicked they were. You could be the meanest, nastiest, murderingest guy in the world. It doesn't matter. You will be washed clean. And you will, your conscience will be cleansed. No one can do that. The animal sacrifices could not do it. Your shrink isn't going to help you do that, right? The self-help books, not going to cleanse your conscience. <laughs> Nothing but the blood of Jesus. And putting all your faith in Christ will cleanse your conscience and give you a place in heaven. Born again. Hmm. Jesus paid it all at the cross. So the Colossians don't have to go backwards. Huh. That's blasphemy. They failed to live in the reality of Jesus. If they did that, this morning, are you living in the reality of Jesus? That he is your Lord and your Savior. And is, he, is he your master? Is he your, your king? Do you live in the reality of his forgiveness and his cleansing touch in your life? Well, I hope you are. And if you're not, you can. By putting all your faith in Jesus. Are you trusting in the reality of the cross where he died for your sins and rose from the dead? Or are you trusting in your own personal goodness? Because people say, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm not, I'm not that murderous, horrible dude you just referred to. Good people go to heaven. No, they don't. The Bible never says that ever. There's sadly a whole lot of people in the world that are frankly pretty good people by worldly standards, not by God's. But they're not going to go to heaven. Only people who yield the knee to Jesus, right? and surrender their life to the king, and are washed and cleansed, they will go to heaven forever and ever. So we can't trust in our own goodness. So are you living in the reality of the cross where Jesus died? Or are you living in your own goodness? We have to make a choice. The bread of life or the world. Okay, so Jesus... He fulfills all the sacrificial system, which is here referenced and hinted at by the new moon celebration. Verse 16. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. He ends that verse speaking about the Sabbath day. Remember that the devil is behind all this, trying to deceive the people. Get them to go back to the shadows and miss the reality of Christ. Hmm. All the cults of our world love to attack Jesus. That's what they're doing. They're attacking Jesus and saying, he's not really what's valuable. These other laws and regulations are valuable. But if you look at the cults of today, they do the same thing. They try to discredit Jesus, say he's not really God. They, they discredit his character. So it's very common. It's been going on for thousands of years now. But Paul is telling the, the Christians here, you don't have to go back to a strict observance of the Sabbath day. What day is Sabbath? Saturday. This was something that God gave Israel. So before I talk about how Jesus fulfilled the Sabbath, what on earth is the Sabbath? Because we probably don't really know. <laughs> the Sabbath day was given to Israel. It's one of the Ten Commandments, commandment number four, to observe the Sabbath and make it holy, honor God. And not to do any what? 
work. You don't get you don't have to work. You don't have to work, which I think is kind of cool. God commanded a day off. That's kind of sweet. <laughs> Especially in the ancient world, nobody I mean, unless you're like the rich guy who owned everything, you didn't you didn't get a day off as a servant or a regular person. Your animals not a, never got a day off, but according to the Ten Commandments, and you lived in Israel, even your critters and the slaves, anybody, everybody in the whole nation got a day off, commanded by God. So so fiercely that you would there was absolutely uh, capital punishment. You could be killed for breaking the Sabbath. So God took your day off seriously. But this all comes out of Genesis chapter two. Remember, when God created everything. If you've ever read the Genesis, at least the beginning of it. Six days God took for creation just because he wanted to. He could do it in a snap. But each day he created the heavens and the earth and the stars and the universe and, and the critters and the trees and the waters. And yada, yada, you read it. It's awesome. Six days he, he uh, made everything. And what did he do on the seventh? He rested. Well, that's because he was so tired. No, he's God. He's not tired. He spoke it into creation. No, he, he rested in the sense that he was done. It was completed. There was no more work to do. It's over. I'm resting. That's what he's saying here. It's completed. That's why number seven in the Bible is not the number of perfection, but it's the number of completion. When you see that scattered throughout the Bible many times, it speaks of completeness. No more to do. God finished it all. So therefore, on the Sabbath, seventh day, which is Saturday, the Sabbath, he declared it holy. And he set it apart from all the other days of the week and said to his people, you guys don't work on this day, and I want you to honor me. And set it aside as holy. Not a suggestion. It was a commandment. Very serious. Why did God do that? Well, a couple reasons. I think the very first reason why God created the Sabbath and commanded it, it was a memorial to God. A day to say, I remember my God. I remember my Creator, how He made everything, and He made me, and He loves me. And it was a day set aside to refocus and worship him and love him, right? Sunday is pretty good like that too, isn't it? Yeah. Where would, we, where would we be without Sundays? To take the time to make sure we're refocusing on God. Very, very important. And that day was about resting. Not just physical rest, but learning to rest in God. If you want to rest in God, it means you trust him. Right? If you're really trusting God, you're resting in him and you have peace. Secondly, I think <clears throat> the reason why God gave the Sabbath was a memorial to what he did for them. The, the Ten Commandments are given in Exodus chapter 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5. In the book of Exodus, it talks about the, the Sabbath day as a day of rest and speaks about creation and how it came to be. In Deuteronomy, it's interesting, and I felt like this was a little new thing. I just noticed this week. But when it talks about the Sabbath, it actually says that it's a memorial for the people as they came out of slavery in Egypt, remember under Pharaoh for 400 years, that they were to remember that they used to be slaves, but now they came into God's rest as his children. Right? Because slavery is a whole lot of work. So it's to remember and commemorate God's love and setting them free. Pretty cool. So I think that the reason for the Sabbath is so they remember all that God did for them. Hmm. Sundays are important like that too. That's why we read the Bible, to remember the cross. Well, we take communion to remember what God has done for us. Okay, but no longer slaves. Now they come in to eventually the promised land and they can find rest in God. So the story was, God took them out of Egypt, remember? He went to the promised land. He was going to give them an awesome land flowing with milk and honey. It was awesome. Not literally. It'd be very sticky, but anyway. 
But they didn't go in, did they? Unbelief. Sin. They, they, they didn't believe God. They had no faith. So God made them stay in the desert for 40 years till the older generation died. And then he brought them in under Joshua into the promised land. And the promised land is always pictured in the scripture as a type of rest. From their slavery to a beautiful land trusting in God where things were a whole lot easier. And thirdly, I think that God gave the, promise, or the, uh, the Sabbath day just to give people a day off. God cares about our physical well-being. I think that's nice. We need to make sure that we take a day off. Rest. Good for the soul. Good for the mind. Good for the body. So these false teachers are trying to get this church to go back and strictly observe the Sabbath. But you think, well, it doesn't sound all that bad. <laughs> but the problem is, if you concentrate on the shadow, you forget the reality. Right? You can so the question then is, how is Jesus the fulfillment of the Sabbath? This day of rest, how did Jesus become the reality? Not just the picture they were carrying around in their purse. <laughs> Notice in the New Testament, after Jesus, when the church was birthed, after Christ ascended to heaven, the day of Pentecost, the church changed the day in which they met. They used to meet on Saturday, the Sabbath. But they changed it to which day? Sunday. That's why we're here today. Right? We didn't, I didn't make that up. They did. Early church. The apostles. They called it the Lord's Day. And why did they switch it to Sunday? Because that's the day that Jesus rose from the dead. Remember, early Easter morning was Sunday morning. And they call it the first day of the week. So that was a transitional there. And then also when we look in the New Testament, we find that of the Ten Commandments, they all came and repeated by the apostles except for number four, the command for the Sabbath. Interesting. Interesting. So it's no longer a direct command that if you don't sit down on Saturday and don't work, you know, you're sinning. Right? We, we're not bound by that any longer. Hmm. We've, been, we've been set free in a sense from that. Yet the principle of the Sabbath is still very important. But remember, what's the Sabbath about? It's about rest and remembering God. Rest and remembering God. Yet, if you read the history of the nation of Israel, they never rested in God. They never really did. It's so sad. Such a tragic story. God loved them so much, gave them so many chances, but they disobeyed him and didn't get to go into the promised land. And even when they did finally get to go into the promised land under Joshua, was it all rest and peace? No, because they disobeyed God over and over again. And nations came in and oppressed them and beat, on, beat down on them. And they, they didn't find rest. They kind of found slavery once again, sadly. So the Sabbath day's rest that God was trying to give the people, they never really found. They never really grabbed it. they lacked faith. Hmm. Continual unbelief. Let me read to you from Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3, starting in verse uh, 19. So we see that they were not, the Israelites were not able to enter the promised land because of their unbelief. That was their problem. They didn't believe. So they couldn't enter into God's rest. Chapter 4, verse 1. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it through unbelief. 
For we also have had the gospel preached to us, just as they did, but the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not combine it with faith. Now we who have believed, notice that, now we who have believed, enter that rest. So, for us to enter into the rest of God, we have to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is what the Old Testament people failed to do. They failed to believe and trust in God, so they could never enter the rest. So Jesus, he is the Sabbath rest for God's people. So when we put our faith in him, what do we rest from? We rest from our sin. Remember they were slaves in Egypt for 400 years? Well, before we came to Christ, we were slaves to sin. Sin was our master, and it was work, and we could never get out from underneath it. But when we put our faith in Jesus, we come out of that slavery into the rest and the peace that God offers us. Romans chapter 5, verse 1, that we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So Jesus is the fulfillment of the Sabbath because he's our Sabbath rest, and we're no longer slaves to sin. So we don't, rest isn't about one day a week. When you come to Jesus, it's about every day of the week. It's about trusting in Christ every single day for a lifetime and then rest for all eternity, right? But the one day a week was a foreshadowing of Christ who would give us rest continually from our labor, from our sin. That's why Jesus said this. There's our last passage for this morning. Matthew chapter 11, verse 28 for your notes. Matthew eleven twenty-eight. 28. Jesus has an invitation for all, and he says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. It's his teaching. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When you come to faith in Jesus, you come with a burden first. It's talking about sin. Sin is a burden that weighs down upon our souls. Have you, do you remember the weariness of it? Hmm. Maybe this morning some of you are feeling the weariness of your sin and how you're separated from God. And you maybe are starting to understand that it's a burden on your soul. But if you come to faith in Jesus, you give up the burden. And he takes it from you, right? And then he gives you rest in your soul, in this life, now and for all eternity. Mm. That's why we love him. Because <laughs> he takes away our sin. And we rest in God and we trust him. And his yoke is easy and his burden is light. Serving Jesus isn't easy, right? But it's good. And it's way easier than letting sin be your master. Because sin and the devil is one cruel master. So Jesus fulfills the Sabbath rest by giving rest to all who come to him by faith. Have you done that today? Have you laid your burden and your weariness of sin down at the cross and say, forgive me, Jesus, of all my sin. I want to give my life to you. I want to turn from my sin. I'm going to repent. I'm going to leave it. And I'm going to follow you. And just do what you have to say from here on out. Because I want to live in your rest in this life and forever and ever in heaven.
So this morning, we're going to pray together. And if you've never given your life to Christ and entered into His rest, you can today. He's only one prayer away, okay? But it's a lifetime of loving and serving Him. It starts with a prayer saying, Jesus, forgive me and save me. And then it's every day walking in His peace and His rest. Keep eating from the ultimate clean food, the bread of life, right? Because i got to eat every day. I don't know about you. keeps me going. So you got to feed from Jesus. Take his love and his mercy and his, his word, the word of the Bible, into our souls every day and feast upon him and live for him. So this morning, if you'd like to give your life to Christ, would you close your eyes and bow your head? and Would you pray with me? Would you pray this prayer in your heart and in your mind? And simply say with me, Lord Jesus, I need you. I need you to save me from hell and from my sin. Jesus, I need you to take my burden from my soul. Jesus, take the weariness of carrying the sin and living in sin. Take it away. Take it away, please, Lord. Forgive all my sin, Lord Jesus, I pray. Thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I put all my faith in you. Thank you, Lord, for rising from the dead to give me life everlasting. I choose to leave my old sinful life and walk in a new life with you. Thank you, Jesus, for loving me. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving my sin and being so merciful to me. I choose to love you now. Help me, Lord, to love you every day to feed upon the bread of life. To live in your rest every day. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. If you prayed that this morning, that is just the beginning of a life of loving God and knowing Him. We're going to have a baptism here after our last song. And baptism is a beautiful picture of what happens when we give our lives to Christ. As we go under the water, well, as Scott goes under the water today, it's a beautiful picture of dying to our old life and letting our sins be washed away by Jesus. And then as you come up out of the water, it speaks of the resurrection of Christ raising us into a new life with him living with him every single day. So let's worship God in this final song.